morning, Westgate Chapel. Why don't you go ahead and stand with us as we begin our morning with worship together.
of heaven 
lift up a shout of praise. Come on. a seat for just a moment. Man, we are so excited to worship together, right? You feel that? That's people who are gathered together to worship Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. And if you are a first-time guest here, that is what we are about here at Westgate Chapel. We love worshiping together, hanging out together, doing life together. There's all kinds of ways you can get involved at Westgate. Check out the app. It's a Westgate Chapel app. It's pretty awesome. And you can check out the guest services center out there as well. And one thing we also love to do is pray for one another. So please take the time to check the, or fill out that connection card in the pew in front of you, or you can do it on the app or online as well. And that's another way for us to get to get to know you and for us as a staff and elders to pray for each and every one of your needs that God has laid on your heart or anything you're going through. And with that said, why don't we, why don't we shake one another's hands? That's something we love doing, right? We love talking. You, I, I guarantee if I give you guys another minute and a half, you would say that's not even nearly long enough. But go ahead and take the time and greet one another today. everybody. So we're going to learn a new song today. How's that sound? I hear a lot of indifference out there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the song is called This Is Our God. It's by Phil Wickham. I highly recommend you checking it out if you haven't already. But again, like I just said, something we love to do together here is worship. And we worship God, not just because of what he's done or what he will do, but because of who he is. Amen? Man, that's why we truly are called to worship God, just because of who he is, because he is worthy. But this song right here is the gospel. This is, this is who God is for, for what he did for us when he died on the cross and rose again. And I'm going to read how many, how many of y'all believe, because I, I really believe that God wants to do something amazing today in your lives. How many of you guys believe that? You believe that? If you really believe that, yeah, a amen, yeah. I'm going to read out of Romans 3, verse 21 through 24. 
But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Do you hear that? No matter who you are. For everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is really important right here. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Amen? Amen. Guys and gals, if you are here today and maybe you maybe you don't know Jesus, or maybe you think you, you don't know Jesus, maybe you're not worthy of that gift of grace that he offers us, I'm telling you, you are simply because God says you are. There is nothing you can do or I can do or anyone up here can do, nothing Rob can do to deserve God's grace. I can't earn it, right? I can't earn it. When I think about the things that I've done, when I think about the sin and the shame in my own life, I'm, it, it, it can be really heavy sometimes. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're feeling that. Maybe you're feeling the weight of your sin. Maybe you're feeling the weight of your shame. But God wants to take that from you. If you leave with nothing else today, leave with that. At least leave thinking about that. But I promise you, God has died for you. He has died for each and every one of you, and he wants you to be made right with him. And all you have to do all you have to do, you don't have to change, you don't have to change your whole life, you don't have to do everything, it's, 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 you sound all these rules and stuff I gotta follow, no. God offers you this gift of eternal life. It's a gift. You don't have to do anything for it except receive it and choose to receive it and choose to follow him. That's what he offers to you. Amen? Amen? Let's sing this song. This is our God.
fear that took our breath away. Faith so weak that we could barely pray, but he heard every word, every whisper. Now those altars in the wilderness tell the story of his
You've walked on water, you've calmed storms. You're this mighty, powerful being. And yet, you ask us to let you in. And you want to be part of our lives. And I pray that this morning, we just open our hearts to receive you, Lord. Because you're not a bully. You don't want to force yourself into our lives. And let us, let us just be open to you, Lord. In your mighty and precious name we pray, amen. Now let us continue in this act of worship with our tithes and offerings. If you could pass uh, the buckets on your right to the left, uh, people could get an opportunity to worship God in that way. Thank you, church. morning church it's so good to worship together and uh, just to have this time uh, not only in community with one another but just to sing our praises to a God who uh, is so deserving of our praise uh, so glad that you are here worshiping with us today if you have a moment uh, pull out your uh, Bibles with me and turn to Exodus chapter 20 you might know that that's where we are but today will be the last day as we wrap up the uh, Ten Commandments together as well as you walked in hopefully you were able to grab uh, some sermon notes that you can use to follow along and uh, you want to have those handy as well this morning as uh, as we turn to our passage uh, and uh, begin to dive in I wanted to ask you a question this morning. 
uh, as, we, uh, as we begin. Have you realized how good our culture is at getting us to think that we need something? Have you recognized that? Literally every single day, we are being bombarded with messages that are telling us in one way or another that we need a certain product or a certain thing, or there is something that is out there that would make our lives more filled, more fulfilled, and more complete if we could just get our hands on it. And one of the things that I think uh, most of us, if we pause to recognize, is that advertisers of products are really good at kind of getting to the core of our own hearts and what we think we need and trying trying to convince us that we need something so that we'll go out and get it. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, I, I took a look online to think about the different ways uh, that makers of products have do done this in their advertising. And one of those ways has been by creating like special jingles that, that they play on TV that like they try to sear into our minds to remind us about the product. And I want to put it to the test this morning just to see how successful they are. So I'm going to kind of give you a lead in to some of those jingles and you've got to finish it for me, okay? Let's see if this actually works. Here we go. Nationwide. Look at you guys. You have been conditioned. All right. How about this? If we're watching Lucky Charms, Lucky Charms are what? Very good. Look at that. Here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to age myself a little bit. I'm not sure if uh, some of you young people in here are going to catch this one. There are a lot of you older people that will. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Excellent. Alka-Seltzer, right? All right. The next one. Here we go. The best part of waking up. Yeah, there you go. All right. Here we go. My favorite, this last one. What would you do? Good. You've all been conditioned very well. The makers of these products put these things into our minds, but have you ever noticed, not only do they create these jingles that, that we'll remember, that we'll associate with their product, but if you actually listen to what we're singing and the things that we're saying, they're feeding these messages in that tell us that if we go and get this product, that somehow it will make our life better. That we've got somebody that's on our side. That we uh, will find great relief if we buy a product. That we will start our morning off the right way, which we all want. Or if we just try hard enough and give everything that we got, then we can have complete fulfillment. Another way that they do this, though, as well, is that marketers will use very specific phrases in their advertising to try to attract customers. And they've chosen them specifically to appeal to the very core desires of our heart. They will use phrases like, enhance your life, enhance your beauty. You've never looked so good. Get noticed, get the most out of life. You're worth it. And they use these phrases to cause us to go to this place at the very core of our desires to believe that if we just had this thing, then every desire of our heart would be fulfilled and our life would be better. You know, as we've been going through this series together, entitled Guardrails. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that as we've looked at the Ten Commandments is this, is that we understand, especially with the commandment that we're going to look at this morning, is that it goes to the very core of those innate desires that drive a lot of our lives. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It is the capstone 10th commandment, Exodus 20, 17, and it says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, 
or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, as we think about this commandment that that is given to us, the first question that no doubt comes into our mind is, what does it mean to covet? Like, how do we understand what it is that is actually being conveyed in this commandment? And the first point, you'll see this in your notes, that, that we need to think about is this, is that there is no difference between the Hebrew word for desire and the Hebrew word for covet. It is actually the same word that is used of those two ideas. In other words, they're used interchangeably, desire and covet with this Hebrew word. But at first glance, what this actually does is poses a problem for us because all of us have desires, right? And not all of those desires, when we think about them, are necessarily wrong. I've had desires my whole life. Maybe you've had some things that you have either wanted or wanted to do. One of those things is I have always desired to go to Angels Baseball Spring Training. If you look at this picture on the screen, it's out in Tempe, Arizona. It's beautiful. I've always wanted to go because you can go and not only meet all the players, but watch incredible games for a little bit cheaper than going to a real game. Uh, And it's something that I've always wanted to do because I love the Angels, a desire that I have. Another thing that I've always desired to do from uh, the time I was in college was to go and see the Blue Man Group. Uh, I was really like excited about this. And then I heard that they came here to Toledo and I completely missed it, which really bummed me out. But I've always kind of been, been intrigued by what they do and thought, oh, that would be super cool and fun to go see. Uh, another thing I've always desired to do is to go on an African safari. Not necessarily like you would see in this picture where, you know, the animals are actually jumping into the vehicle, but it's one of the things I love to travel. I love to see things in places I've never seen before. It's a desire that I have. Now, you probably have a lot of desires, things that you would like to do, things that you would like to have. But does that mean when we read this that our desires are wrong? I mean, we all have them, right? We might desire to get married. If we get married, we might desire to have children. We desire to have a good job to provide for ourselves or for our family. We desire deep friendships. We desire different types of food. We desire rest. And literally, the list could go on and on of things that seem natural for us to desire. But the scriptures make clear that desire in and of itself isn't wrong. What does Psalm 37, 4 say? It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Psalm 145, verse 16 says, you open your hand, the psalmist speaking to God, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Even Jesus himself, it says of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, that Jesus greatly desired to have the Passover feast with his disciples. What the Bible teaches us clearly is that merely having a desire for something isn't wrong. And so what is it about coveting? Since it's the same Hebrew word, what is the difference between just a natural desire and coveting? Now, some people would say that coveting means essentially that we desire something too much. But how confusing is that, right? Like, I have a strong desire to go to spring training, but at what point does it become wrong? Like, where's the line here? And so that's the next question. How do I know if I've crossed the line from desire to coveting? What makes that clear? What I want you to notice is that this commandment doesn't say, you shall not covet period. And I think the reason that it does that is because there is desire that is natural to every single human being. But what does it say? It says, you shall not covet what? Your neighbor's blank, fill in the blank, right? Something that your neighbor has. So some would say 
that the line between just natural desire and coveting is defined by wanting something that is someone else's. Uh, When you look at this and you think of the idea of neighbor, we talked about last week that in the Jewish context, your neighbor isn't what we normally think of, right? We read this, it says, don't covet your neighbor, and you're like, all right, you know, my neighbor's next door across the street, as long as I'm not like lusting after their car or their house or their wife or that kind of thing, then I'm in the clear, right? I'm safe. Because we think to ourselves, it's about that type of neighbor. But remember that neighbor in Jewish times was defined as anyone and everyone that would enter into your life. That was your neighbor. And so the Jewish interpretation of this commandment was this, is that it was only violated when a scheme was made to act upon a desire to take from someone something that was theirs. Now, this is a really interesting way to think about it. This is how the religious leaders thought about it. So in other words, if I want something that you have, if I make a scheme and a plan to get it from you, like your house or your wife or your boyfriend or your iPhone, whatever it is, 14, if your ox or your donkey, your, your Mustang, your Jaguar, right? Whatever it may be, if I make a plan to take it, then that itself is coveting. But even when you think about that, that definition still feels a bit narrow because According to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would look at these commandments and say to themselves, well, as long as I'm not making a plan and going and taking from somebody, then I'm not coveting. But what does Jesus do? What are the 10 commandments meant to do is really the question. You see, while the definition seems narrow, what we've been learning throughout this entire series is that with the 10 commandments, sin is not defined merely based upon our action but it's an attitude of our hearts. And that's what Jesus drives into in the New Testament. We've said all along that the 10 commandments are not meant to be a ladder for us to climb, but a mirror for us to look into. In other words, the 10 commandments are not a way for us to climb a ladder to either do or not do the right or wrong things. It's not about climbing ourselves as a way to get to heaven or to achieve greater moral achievement. It's not a ladder, but it's a mirror for us to see ourselves correctly, to look in that mirror and to look clearly into our own hearts, that we would see the brokenness of our human nature that resides there, and ultimately that we would see our need for God, that no matter how hard we try, we may be able to overcome some of the physical working out of the Ten Commandments at face value, but the big issue is that in our hearts resides sin that consistently pulls us away from God where we begin to see our need for a savior. And so I would say this morning that as we look at the whole of scripture to understand what coveting means or covetousness is, I would say it this way, covetous, covetousness is the sin of if only. It is the sin of if only. I want you to write this phrase down in your notes. If only I had, and then draw a blank line. If only I had blank, I would be happy or satisfied. Write that down. If if I only had blank, I would be happy or satisfied. All of us at some point in our life have said this, thought it, felt it in some way, shape, or form. And I want you to take just a moment right now to fill in that blank. 
Maybe it's something you've been thinking about even right now. If I just had this, I would be happy and fulfilled. And, you know, if it's a little less threatening, maybe you can write something down that, you know, in the past. I know that this is how I felt in the past. Either way, I want you to take a moment, write that down, and then do me a favor. Turn to the person next to you and confess your sin. Ready, set, go. All right? What is it? What is that thing? Don't be afraid. I told first service they were really quiet. Don't be afraid to share it. That's why I said you can do something in the past. It's a little less threatening, right? If only I had this, I would be more fulfilled or I would be happy. All right. Somebody shout out for me. What is that thing? What did you write down? Huh? Children. Children. What else? Children. Patience. What? Grandchildren. Grandchildren. Yeah. Money. Right? In first service, somebody yelled out pumpkin pie. I, why? I don't know, but that's their thing, apparently. If only they had pumpkin pie, they would be more satisfied. We'll try to work on that for next Sunday. But literally, what is that blank for you? Is it a nicer place to live? Is it a newer car? Is it a spouse? A better spouse? Children? More behaved children? Can I get an amen? Grandchildren? A successful career? That promotion that you've been wanting? More money? Spotless health? That you would weigh less? That you would have better looks? you have a larger group of friends and greater community, fame, power, if only I had what, I would be happier, satisfied. You see, covetousness is the sin of if only. When we say if only, what it does is it reveals our discontent and belief that there is some thing in this life that will fulfill us that will get us to that place where everything feels like it's in its right place. And what Paul helps us to understand is that covetousness, this type of desire that makes us think that we can find something that will make us fulfilled, what he reveals to us in scripture is that covetousness is idolatry. I want you guys to to think about this as we look at Colossians chapter three, verse five. The apostle Paul says it this way. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What Paul helps us to understand is that our longing and desire for things to bring us fulfillment literally turns them into idols in our life. When I covet, it says... I can't live without that person, that relationship, being in that specific place, having that ultimate possession or any other thing. What it actually does is it makes a God out of our desires, believing that those things will give us that fulfillment. And what this commandment really does is it reveals a deep sickness that actually resides within each of our hearts. It's John Piper that defined covetousness this way, that covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment 
in God. I'll say that again. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you contentment in God. As we look at what the Apostle Paul teaches us throughout the whole of Scripture, we begin to understand that covetousness is not just an action, it is a posture of our hearts. And it's an issue that has plagued the world, all of creation for all of time, even before the foundation of the world itself was created. When we read the Bible, it tells us that Satan was in heaven as an angel within God's kingdom. And that before he fell, he longed for that place of being God himself, for being able to sit on God's very throne. It was that covetousness, that desire to have that thing that would make him truly fulfilled outside of God's plan that was the idolatry in his own life. When we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, they believed that the greatest fulfillment that they could have would be found in something that was outside of God and his plan for their life. And throughout the pages of scripture for all of mankind, for all time, even in our own lives today, we believe somehow that we can be like God, that we can find our own contentment in the world that surrounds us if we just try hard enough. In my own life, I've struggled with this from the time that I was a young person till the time that I've been an adult today. There have been points in my life that I could point at and go, yeah, I really wrestled with that truth. As a young man going through junior high and early high school, I longed for deep friendship. I didn't have that type of connection with people. And rather than following what God's plan and God's desire was for my life, I would pay attention to the first person that turned to me and gave me any sort of attention, would invite me into their group. And for me, that was the absolute wrong person. I found myself walking away from God, far from God, living a life that wasn't pleasing to God. Why? Because I was trying to fulfill that hole on my own, in my own way, outside of what God's desire and plan was for me. I was coveting something that was outside of God's plan. And what I want us to hear this morning is this, is that when we covet, what we're actually doing is believing a lie about who God is. When we covet, we believe a lie about who God is, that he doesn't provide. We believe a lie that he, that, that what he has provided isn't enough for us. We believe a lie that he doesn't love me or he would give me what I have been longing for. We believe a lie that he doesn't know what is best for me, the very lie that Satan whispered into the ear of Eve when he said, God is holding out on you. There's something so much better. You see, when we covet, we believe lies about who God is, but also we believe then that we can do better outside of his plans and his provision for us. And so what do we do? We chase things. We chase things in this world that we think will satisfy us. But have you ever noticed, no matter how hard you chase things, no matter how many things you chase, and even if you're able to grab some of them and accumulate them for themselves, have you ever noticed that it's not enough? That you may get that thing that you want, but it doesn't quite bring the fulfillment that you thought it would? that your heart is always longing for something deeper and something more. These things never leave us fulfilled and happy. Why? Because that relationship, sex, that job, status, money, that location, 
that stage of life, that thing that you are trying to use to fill your life was never intended to be what would fulfill you. Rather, what it does is it leaves you empty, broken, and always longing for something more until you come to your own senses and realize that God is that something more that your heart is longing for. C.S. Lewis would say it this way. We are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That we ourselves find ourselves toiling in the things of this world that are tantamount to making mud pies in a slum because our hearts can't even begin to fathom the incredible riches that God has for us and offers to us that will bring us that thing that we have always longed for. So as we understand what covetousness is, I want us to turn now and look and understand that the greatest riches in life, the thing that brings that contentment that we long for, are found in godliness. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to begin by taking a look at verses 6 through 10. The Apostle Paul here is going to teach us in this passage this truth that I hope and pray that we would internalize together this morning. That the greatest riches in life are found in godliness that produces contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. This is what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As we think about these words that Paul is speaking to us, it's important for us to have a little bit of context of what was actually going on in Ephesus as Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, and giving him instruction. The first thing that we see is this, is that as Paul is teaching, there were false teachers that were using religious activity as a means to get rich. We understand this as we read this letter that within the area of Ephesus, there were false teachers that were going around that were teaching a whole litany of false teachings, even within the church. But they were also using religious activity as a way for themselves to get rich. If there's one easy way for me to try to help us to understand it, maybe apply it a little bit, it's the idea of the prosperity gospel that we see in our world today. The prosperity gospel teaches that you will find your greatest satisfaction in the things of this world, and that ultimately that is what God wants for you. There is a, a famous preacher by the name of Joel Osteen who has a massive church in Texas that teaches this, this truth, 
that tells his people on a weekly basis, thousands upon thousands of people, that God's design for your life is that if you would love him and give him all of your heart, that he will fill up your life with all of the riches and all of the prosperity that you could possibly handle so that you can be fulfilled and complete. And can you hear me this morning? This is a false gospel. It is not true. It goes against the very teachings of Scripture. It is the very height of covetousness in the church that is draped in a phony spiritual covering. God's desire is not that we would find our satisfaction in following his rules so that we can receive earthly blessing. All throughout the pages of Scripture, where does God want us to find our deepest sense of contentment and fulfillment? in the only thing that will last, and that is in him. You see, these teachers, these false teachers that were using religious activity as a means to get rich were profiting off of others for their own financial gain. And while they were spreading all other kinds of false teaching that Paul was deeply concerned about, Paul speaks specifically to this issue here in this chapter. Some scholars believe that they taught that the law was a way, that, that keeping the law was a way to financial prosperity, but at very minimum, the example of their love for money and pursuit of wealth was a danger to the church. And so what does Paul want them to understand, the people in the church to understand? He wants us to understand that contentment isn't a state of account, but it is a state of the heart. Back at Christmas time, we did a series together talking about contentment itself, and we talked about this very point that Paul wants us to understand. He talks about it in a lot of his writings, that contentment is not a state of account. It's not about what we can get that will make us happy. It is a state of our heart. I would explain it to you this way. I want you to picture a baby that is crying. If a baby is crying, it means often one of two things, that they're hungry or you need them to change their diaper. And they won't stop crying until you do one of those things. So what do you do? You feed them or you change them, and then they stop crying. Now it seems that they're content. Why? Because their circumstances have changed, at least we think, until the next time that they poopy the diaper or they need some food, right? Picture a child that's complaining because they want something. What do you do? You eventually give in because you can't take it anymore, and and you get them to stop complaining. Now they're content. Why? Because their circumstances changed. This is the way that we commonly think of contentment. If only our circumstances would change, then we would be content. If we could get something better, then we would find that place of peace in our heart and feel fulfillment and be content. But what Paul is teaching us is that that is not contentment because contentment is not a state of account. It's not about what you can get because you will always need something more. Contentment is a state of the heart. It is completely free from dependence on circumstances. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12? He says, look, I know what it is to be in need, to be in want, and I know what it is to have plenty, to have everything that I need. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. What is Paul teaching us about contentment? What Paul is talking about is a contentment that is not dependent on how many worldly toys we can accumulate. 
or a contentment that is not dependent upon relationships, a contentment that is not dependent upon our health, a contentment that is not dependent on life circumstances. What is Paul saying? If you're single and you don't like that, you can still be content. If you're married and it's not going the way that you had always hoped it would, you can still be content. If you have kids and they're driving you nuts, you can still be content. If you don't have kids and you, don't, and you can't have kids, you can still find contentment. If you don't get into the school of your choice, if you don't get the job that you desire, if you don't get that promotion you've been hoping for, whether you're in prison or you're free, it doesn't matter because you can be content. Why? What does Paul say to us in our passage this morning? Godliness with contentment is great gain. That as we seek our contentment, not in the things of this world that easily pass away and slip through our fingers, but as we seek our contentment in God and God alone, the one who provides everything that we need, that that is where we find great gain because it is the things of God that will never pass away. What does Paul say as he continues in our passage this morning? He says that to live our lives seeking contentment and possessions is literally the height of foolishness, that it is the height of foolishness. Listen to his words. He says this, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many different pangs. To live our lives seeking contentment and possessions, he says, is the height of foolishness. He says it is senseless. The same word there is foolishness, and it is harmful to our lives. Why? Because possessions and things in this world were never meant to bring us satisfaction. And the writers of the pages of Scripture, humans just like you and me, have expressed this time and time again. The one that we think of the easiest is probably King Solomon. King Solomon, the Bible tells us that he had every pleasure that this world could offer at his disposal, that there was nothing that he couldn't get his hands on, that he had all of the wealth, all of the riches, he had all of the women, he had all of the power, he literally had everything that the human heart could want and desire. It was his. And what does he say to us in Ecclesiastes 5.11? With all of that wealth, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with gain, because this also is a vanity. What did Solomon come to realize? Is that it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. That all of the things that we pursue, he was a person that had it all and yet realized even in his great wealth and prosperity, it did not bring him the fulfillment that he longed for. 
Jesus teaches the same truth in the New Testament in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, that this is the height of foolishness when we pursue possessions. There was a man that it says that came to Jesus uh, in Luke 22, that he came to Jesus and he uh, was having a dispute with his family over the splitting of an inheritance. And he says to Jesus, hey, could you help us work this out? Like, I don't think I'm getting my fair shake in this deal. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the man and he says, beware of all covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But what happens is that Jesus goes on to tell a parable of a rich man who sought great wealth for himself and sold a lot of things and accumulated a mass of wealth and created a life where he finally said to himself, I have everything I need. I will rest and be merry and life will be good. And then it says that God required his very life of him that night and that he couldn't enjoy it. And Jesus teaches this parable to help us to understand that our pursuit of the things in this world, they will always fail us. They aren't lasting. They are here today, and they are gone tomorrow. Literally, that our pursuit of those things also are destructive to us. So ask yourself this question as we continue to read Paul's words. Why is it that the love of money or the overemphasized desire for possessions is so destructive to us? Why is it so destructive? When you think of the words that Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he literally defines it as uh, temptation being a snare for us. Do you guys know what a snare is? Look at this picture uh, that is up here on the screen. A snare is a long piece of wire with a loop at the end that's been attached to a stationary object like a large tree. And it's typically a trap that is meant to catch wild and unsuspecting animals. You'll see that in the picture that there's a piece of meat that is set there in the middle of that snare in order to fool the animal to come in. And once it comes in, it knocks the branch and it goes and it wraps this wire around its arm and it's completely trapped. An unsuspecting animal lured by something that it desires. In most cases... These types of snares are meant to catch wild animals so that they can be killed. And I say this because the love of money or possessions here are compared to the bait that Satan uses to lure us. That he goes to the very heart of our greatest desires of things that we think will give us fulfillment and he uses those things to lure unsuspecting believers into a trap that will only end in our destruction. What does Paul say at the end of this passage? That it is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith. Never mind the destruction that we cause when we go on these unendless pursuits of things in this world to fulfill us the way that we can wreck other people's lives, bring ruin and misery to other people. Paul says that the greatest thing that we have to understand is that what it actually destroys is our own faith. Paul says that this lack of contentment in Christ destroys our faith in Christ. James, in the book of James, says the same thing. He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then when desire has, has uh, when, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And it's not just physical death, but spiritual death between us in God, to where our hearts even become completely desensitized to the things of God. You see, Satan uses a tantalizingly attractive trap that causes so many Christians to be lulled to sleep. 
I believe that as we look in our world today that the American dream is one of Satan's greatest disguises to lure us into believing that things, that money, that people, that locations, that situations, stages of life, that those are the things that will bring us the true fulfillment that we long for. And there are many Christians that have bought into this lie and they don't even realize that their faith is not in God but in a phony dressed up pig that's wearing lipstick. They can never give them the contentment that they desire and that will ultimately lead them completely away from God. And here we sit, not recognizing that we have walked into Satan's trap, lured by the things of this world, that as we continue to pursue them and focus our hearts on them, ultimately will destroy our faith and lead us away without ever realizing it. To come to think that we could even sit in this room on a weekly basis, hearing the word of God, singing songs of praise to God, and yet have hearts that are worshiping other idols because we believe that we'll find greater fulfillment here. It is a trap. And I don't want to leave us in this place because Paul doesn't leave us in this place of just helping us to understand what covetousness is and and the need that we have to find contentment in our life and the destruction of it, but he actually points us to the answer that we all long for. How is it then that we lay hold of the type of contentment in our lives, the glorious riches that God has for us? I have five points for you in closing this morning as we finish up 1 Timothy chapter six together. The first point that he makes is this. Paul says, in order to lay hold of this type of contentment in our lives, run from a heart that seeks fulfillment in temporal things. Literally, run. How is it that we do this? The first thing that we have to do is be aware of our surroundings, that we need to recognize and see the traps that Satan has placed in our lives, and when we can see them, to do everything within our power to run. 1 Timothy 6, 11a says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. See them for what they are, traps that are meant to separate you from your relationship with God and from the very blessing that you desire. Be aware of what Satan is doing, but how do we do that? How are we aware? He continues in the second part of 6.11. He says, by pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, What Paul is telling us is that the way that we receive this contentment is by purposefully pursuing those things that will set our hearts on Christ. He says to pursue righteousness, not your own, not something you do in your own strength and your own power, but that is found in and through Jesus Christ alone. Not your righteousness, but his righteousness through his death on the cross, the surrender of your heart and your life to him. He tells us to pursue godliness, In other words, to allow the Holy Spirit to produce godliness within us, that we would learn to love holiness and being separate from the things of this world, but finding our complete contentment in who God is and who he wants us to be. 
He tells us to pursue faith, that we would trust in all that God has promised us, not believing lies about God, but believing the truth, not only of what he has promised, but that he will provide and give you the contentment that you desire. We're called on to pursue love, to be known as those who are intentionally sharing God's love with other people, to pursue steadfastness. In other words, a quick warning that he gives us in the middle of this list to say, look, it's going to be hard. The traps are going to continue to be set. You're going to be tempted to walk into them. But what does he want us to do? To be steadfast, to persevere, to be unwavering, to be resolute in our commitment to Christ. And as well to pursue gentleness, that we'd be different than the world that surrounds us and the way that we care for other people. As we pursue those things that set our hearts on Christ, we will begin to find the contentment and the riches that God has designed for us. Three, he says to let your life be driven by eternity. To let your life be driven by eternity. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, what does he say? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does Paul want us to remember? What is it that helps to give us strength to find our contentment in God is to remember that this world is not our home. It's not the best that God has for you, that there is so much more beyond this physical world. And if we would keep our eyes focused on the fact that God has so much more for us than we could ever dream or imagine, if we keep our eyes fixed on eternity and not just the now, that we will be encouraged to then find our contentment in him. And what else does he say? A very important truth, number four, that we must always guard the purity of our faith as our most prized possession. And this is a warning to us again that helps us to realize that those traps will always be present. There will be always more creative ways that Satan is trying to set traps to lure you in to think that if I just had this, if I just had this relationship, or if I could just get a little bit more money, or if I could just get that one vacation home, or if I could just do anything at all to have a a better spouse, a better home, a better car, more relationships, better people, if I could get more power, he's always going to set those traps. And so Paul reminds us that we must guard the purity of our faith as our most prized possession. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 14, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guard the purity of the faith that God has given you Don't allow it to be soiled in the mud of this world, but keep it pure and holy and blameless as you seek to surrender your heart and your life to the one who wants to give you that contentment that you have always desired. Why? Number five, because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Close your eyes with me if you would. I just want you to listen to these closing words of Paul. 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 through 16. Let these words wash over you. He says to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. Sovereign meaning that he is the one that is in control of all things. That nothing in this world happens outside of his hands. That he is the only one who can provide that which your heart longs for. Paul says he is the one that is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he rules on the throne of heaven, that he has all power, that there is no one, there is nothing that is greater than he in all this world. And get this, this king, as high as he is, loves you. He thinks of you. He cares deeply for you. He is intimately involved, as the scriptures tell us, in every aspect of your life. Paul says he is the one who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. We live our lives consistently saying, if only I had this, if only I had that, I would be content. And I would say to you as we close our series on the Ten Commandments, that what has been revealed to us is if only we would surrender our hearts to God, we would find what we have always been longing for. Let's worship together.
as we close, I just invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me as we, uh, as we close in prayer. And before we pray, I just want to say that you know, maybe you've been here with us today or over this entire series and you realize and recognize that you've never made that choice to put your faith in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. My prayer and my hope has been this, that God would use this series to help us to see as was intended by the Ten Commandments to see our desperate need for God. That though we try to find fulfillment in the things of this world, that it always fails us. But that thing that our hearts long for, that our hearts are constantly crying out for, that that fulfillment and that contentment will be found in Him and in Him alone. And maybe this morning, God is through His Holy Spirit is bringing you to that place of saying, today I want to make that decision to give the Lord my heart and to place my faith and my trust in him and to follow him and to receive all that he has for me. If you want to make that decision this morning, I just want to invite you as we close to pray this prayer with me. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It is merely a commitment and a statement of your own heart, of your belief in God and your affection for him and your desire to follow him with your life. And so I invite you, if the Lord is moving in your heart, to pray these words quietly in in your own heart. Father, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you have been showing me over and over again in your word 
just how deeply you love me. And today, Father, I confess to you that I believe in your son, Jesus Christ, that I believe that he died on a cross and rose again because I can't be good enough, but he was good enough in my place. I believe that he died, that if I would put my faith in you, that I could receive the beautiful gift of eternal life. And so today I declare, Lord, that I am placing my faith and my trust in you as my personal Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sin and help me, Father, as I begin this journey of walking with you and yielding my heart and my life to you. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would invite you at the close of our service this morning to come to the front to talk with me, to talk with uh, Holly or Ed, who are part of our prayer team this morning. Allow this to be a place of worship. We would love the opportunity to talk with you. But, you know, as we close this series, I would be remiss if I didn't say that for those of us that have a relationship with God and have maybe for a number of years, that God has been speaking into our life. That we've recognized the Ten Commandments isn't just about following the list of rules, but it's about the development of our hearts. And maybe the Holy Spirit has been revealing to you that there are some things in your heart that need to be right with God. And I would invite you this morning as the band plays as we leave, that to come here to the front as a place for you to pray, to do business with God, to declare that today something changes, that I'm not just about following the rules, but I want God to have all of me. I want him to have my heart. And again, myself and our prayer team, our elders would love that opportunity to pray with you this morning. So I invite you to come and to do business with God because God desires to pour out the riches of heaven in your life. That you would experience the fullness of all that he has for you and finding contentment, not only with him in this life, but for eternity. So allow me to close in prayer over you, Father. I thank you for the time that we have had in this series together. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to develop and transform our own hearts. That Lord, we would remember that this relationship of faith in you is not about climbing a ladder of achievement in your eyes, but it is about looking in a mirror and seeing that we will always hopelessly fail because of the sickness and sin of our own hearts. But Father, these commandments have been meant to show us our need for you and to remind us that you have not left us in a place of desperation, but you sent your son so that we can be transformed and experience all that you have. And so Father, today we declare that we want to give our hearts and our lives to you, walk with you, follow you, and we pray that you would be transforming us so that as we go out into this world this week, that our lives would be a light to a world that is looking for contentment, that is hungering for something that will fill. And so that Father, our lives would show them that the answer for more is found in you and you alone. So use us, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Have a great week as you serve the Lord.